You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with One Step Off the Grid and the EV focused The Driven. Not joining me in part one is David Leach from ITK Services. He's traveling at the moment, but he will be joining us for part two. In the meantime, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the podcast Dave Jones, the head of Global Insights from UK Energy Tank, Energy Think Tank, Energy Tank, Energy Think Tank, Ember Climate. Um, Dave, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Charles. Uh, lovely to be here. Um, I'm sure you'd want to be. I don't know whether it's best to be an energy think tank or an energy tank. I'm not really too sure. But uh... oh, I was a, I was a think tank last week, so uh, <laughs> uh, let's go with the think tank. <laughs> Very good. Um, some people may remember uh, Ember under its previous name, Sandbag, which I actually quite liked. I'm not too sure why you changed that, but um, possibly to move with the times or something. Yeah, yeah, we were we were quite focused on um, on on EU policy at the time, um, a bit around carbon pricing, but um, really around um, Europe's phase out of of coal. And what we wanted to do as we relaunched into Ember was um, try and work out how to track that electricity transition wider than just Europe and share some of those lessons around coal phase out that happened in Europe. Um, obviously, eighty percent of the world's coal generation is in is in Asia nowadays. Um, so let's try to explain a little bit more about that and bring some of the the, the, the data and insights um, um, to different audiences across the world that can help better inform um, decisions that everyone's making. Well, that's actually exactly what you've done with your latest report, which looks at 2022, um, as you say, not just in Europe, but around the world. The striking conclusion from this report is that 2023 may finally be the year where we see a reduction in fossil fuel generation. Now, we've had a couple of false starts, mostly due to recessions in various parts of the world or across the world. Um, of course, we've known we need have needed to do this for many, many years. But you think it might start to happen in 2023, albeit at a slow rate, but then accelerating. What is making you think that this might finally be the year? So we're tracking electricity generation um, um, across uh, 93 countries with a really good um, portion of the, glo- the global outlooks. We're able to uh, really work through what that uh, that means at a, at a global level. And um, and obviously interest to us is, is that build out of wind and solar because that's where the biggest changes in generation are, are happening at the moment. So wind and solar accounted for, uh, rose to account for 12% of global generation last year. And just the just the increase in solar generation alone globally could have powered the whole of Australia last year. Um, and then just the increase last year in, in wind generation could have powered the whole of the UK. So that's the, that's the kind of speed um, uh, momentum that wind and solar have, have got at the moment. And what, what when you've been tracking that, so it's the fourth year we've done this report, I mean, keep tracking that, you can keep seeing that that growth is hitting more and more of the, the global rise in electricity demand. Um, and we're now at that point where we believe that um, that, that in 2023 this year, um, that rise in clean power will be ri- higher than the rise in, in electricity demand um, globally, which means that 
we'll see the first fall in fossil generation um, ever outside of uh, uh, outside of a recession. Yeah, it's quite remarkable to think. I mean, twelve percent wind and solar doesn't sound much, but when you think where we've actually come from, it's actually sort of quite a big deal. And as you sort of note, we're now reaching a scale where we're sort of getting almost exponential growth, and um, that's well, that's the idea anyway, is to get that exponential growth to reach. I think what you say is a forty-one percent target. Uh, 41% share by 2030 if we're actually going to get to net zero by 2040 on the grid globally. Yeah, it's interesting. You, there's there's different pathways out there. Um, uh, there's there's IEA, there's ARENA, there's others that are analysed within IPCC. Um, but they're all pretty aligned on 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 what's going to drive that short those short term reductions um, in power sector emissions, which is the rapid build out of wind and solar. They're the only two technologies that are cheap and quickly deployable enough um, within the short term. So um, even by 2040, three quarters of all the clean power deployed globally, um, the generation deployed globally is expected to come just from wind and solar. So you know we talk about um, you know, CCS or nuclear or uh, hydrogen, but really that's just that kind of fighting over the last part of that, that quarter of the pie, which is really to provide some of the flexibility all around. Um, and certainly um, the growth over the last few years has averaged about that kind of level, but three quarters of the clean power that's come online has come from, from, from wind and solar globally. Um, it's just got to come online an awful lot faster. So yeah, the, the IEA show on their pathway, um, wind and solar have got a rise from 12% of global generation last year to uh, just over 40% by 2030. Um, and what that means in practice is, how do you how do you how do you keep the growth rates that we've got at the moment? So wind and solar are growing so quickly globally. I've been averaging um, about 20% um, annual growth um, between them um, for the last decade. Um, it, it was about 20% last year as well. And they've got to carry on that 20% growth um, through towards 2030. And pretty easy when you're um, uh, a less mature industry to have past growth rates, but as you become like bigger and more mature as you've seen, you know, how big solar come, has come in Australia to keep maintaining those growth rates, those high growth rates year on year uh, is pretty tricky. And um, um, so, yeah, that's that's the that's the challenge at the moment is to is to basically quadruple the speed of deployment that we have at the moment um, uh, up towards one terawatt per year of wind and solar globally. From 2030. Yeah, of course, that's um, one thing to sort of say that can or should be done. It's another to actually make sure it is done because that's going to require a combination of policy support, but more importantly, transmission build-outs if that's needed, but or other renewable infrastructure, um, battery storage, or, or or whatever else. Um, plus, social license to actually build these facilities. Yeah, and out of all of those, um, all of those are remarkably important. Eh? People, it's interesting you mentioned the last one on social license. People often kind of you know, talk about the very practical issues of, of, of planning and grid connections, which are very real issues on, on, on the ground today. But the transition that we're going through is, is moving towards um, a kind of clean electrified economy. So you've got clean power, not just to you know, um, phase out coal power and gas power within the electricity grid, but also to replace the oil that you use for cars and the, and the gas that you use for heating. So, um, so as you go through that transition, you need to be building that wind and solar for a couple of decades till you hit your, your 2040, 2050 total net zero target for your economy. Um, so that's a, it's still kind of even for countries, you know, like Australia that are pretty, like 
come pretty fast with their transition already. You've still got a couple of decades of very fast growth of wind and solar going through through there. So, um, so this uh, all the decisions that you need to make and the thought process you need through this need to extend far beyond election cycles. It needs to really be engaging the public um, for the next couple of decades in a way that they see the benefits feeding through to them. Let's just have a talk about um, what's happening in East Asia, because we know that the transition is happening reasonably speedily in, in Europe. And we know from the IEA modelling, for instance, that um, you know, there's 41% by 2030 you talked about to get to net zero grid by 2040. That presupposes that the OECD countries reach basically net zero by 2035, which is essentially um, no coal generation and maybe a little bit of gas sort of floating around or what have you. The big question, though, is what is these big economies, these big growing economies, China, India. Um, I think China's been adding more coal plants. I'm pretty sure India's been adding more coal plants. Where do you see the trend happening there? When do you think that will turn? Um, we've heard, uh, I don't think it was in your report, it was another story came out last week about sort of China's new targets. I mean, it's almost like a gigawatt of wind and solar a day over the next seven or eight years. Um, it's, it's, <laughs> it just seems incomprehensible, really, but um, <laughs> just uh, um, I'm not too sure whether that's actually sort of quite right. But um, can you give us your assessment of what's happening in, in those Asia economies? Yeah, I mean, half of the, over half of the wind and solar being added globally are in, in China at the moment. And uh, they're certainly on a on, on a bit of a tear with that. Um, uh, they haven't got to the point. Uh, we don't think they've got to the point of peaking emissions yet. Emissions rose in 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 2022 again. Um, they've pledged to um, peak coal use in 2025. Um, and when you look at that rate of build up in 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 solar in solar and wind and other clean power as well. By the way, other like um, it's really interesting because China is one of the few countries out there that are not just going building um, wind and solar, but also building um, new nuclear, um, 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 I've got a state of building some bioenergy and also building uh, obviously hydropower as well. So they're kind of the building clean power of all forms uh, out there. Um, wind and solar are the most dominant as they are in other countries as well. Um, but between all those technologies, um, uh, certainly, definitely by, what's, you look at the numbers for i'm pretty confident that by 2025 they're going to go to the point of having had peak coal which is which is their pledge um but that could be sooner that could be um uh, next year or it could even be as soon as this year so um so we'll be tracking numbers as they come through this year from the, the from the chinese government to see um whether that peak in in coal generation is even as soon as this year when you, when you, you people see that building new coal power plants within china but Coal plants are only required to run um, uh, when the um, to kind of fill the gap between the clean power that's coming online, which obviously has a zero cost of marginal cost of uh, generation, um, and then what was needed for electricity demand. So they're only going to take up the residual load. The capacity in itself isn't a determinant of how much coal power generation you're going to see. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, one of the other um, interesting parts of your report were that you said that emissions, overall emissions increased, but the carbon intensity of the global grid has decreased reasonably significantly over recent years and presumably will continue to fall um, at ever-increasing ever rates. <laughs> we, we, we're going to base uh, a lot of the insights around that that dichotomy of, of, of uh, cleanest electricity ever, but highest emissions, and then we realised that was far too confusing <laughs> to try to explain properly. But essentially, we're using more electricity um, um, uh, um, in, in the world every year, um, and we're not building that. Uh, we're building that clean power enough that, on average, is getting cleaner. 
um, but because we're using more of it, the total emissions are rising. And um, so, um, so that, that's the kind of dichotomy we're in. But um, if you take a step back and you look at that 12% of wind and solar generation that was that, that contributed towards generation in 2022, if that hadn't been built over the last couple of decades, and instead that had been met with fossil generation, fossil generation would have been 20% higher globally than it was. So even when you take that context of um, of, of power sector emissions hitting a new record, which is very unfortunate, don't get me wrong, and not where we want to be. But without that wind and solar growth, they could have been 20% higher. So that's how much wind and solar have already been uh, adding into the mix already. And we know that um, that wind and solar are now going to put into that next tipping point, um, uh, whereby um, we're in that world of a new era of falling fossil generation and therefore uh, falling power sector emissions. Mm. You also note in the report that um, once you get clean energy um, more than matching um, the growth in demand, then you're not just going to achieve emissions reductions in the grid, you're going to achieve emissions reduction in other parts of the economy. And this is particularly true as you get through with electrification of homes and um, transport. So you've got electric cars, you've got heat pumps in homes, um, particularly important in Europe. Um, so that is actually going to accelerate those emission reductions in that part of the economy too. Yeah, there was um, it was a really it wasn't in the report itself, but there was a really interesting um, piece of analysis done by the UK's climate change committee on uh, how much uh, a, a kilowatt of clean a kilowatt hour of clean power can can save for emissions because um, you may be familiar with uh, I, I can't remember. Do you work in pounds per ton of megawatt hour? Um, uh, when you look at emissions intensity or, or kilograms in, in Australia. We, we, we kilograms. Oh, thank God. Uh, so um, uh, if you uh, probably, if you're familiar with electricity emissions intensity, you know that a coal is around uh, around um, uh, uh, one tonne per megawatt hour. We do much better than that in Australia because we've got these brown coal generators, which are absolutely appallingly dirty and have been up to about 1.4 um, tonnes uh, <laughs> or kilos, sorry, um, or, or tonnes. Um, they're absolutely appalling, but um, I think the dirtiest one now is about 1.23. Yeah, when I first started tracking coal, was it, is it a hazelwood? That was yes, that's it, yes. For the whole of the world, across the whole of the world, number one. That's quite impressive to have that worst carbon intensity no um no absolutely um uh, so that yeah obviously lignite is uh, is significantly higher than that um uh and then you've got gas generation um uh, around about 0.4 tons uh, megawatt hour but you, you talked about the other sectors um when the uh, uh, um, committee on climate change in the uk was was looking through the numbers they were just saying how does an electric car or has a heat pump fit into that? And actually, they're kind of in the middle of um, coal and gas generation. So it's something like 0.7 tons a megawatt hour. If you're using that that megawatt hour or that kilowatt hour of clean electricity to power an electric car, that's the kind of emissions you're saving when you're displacing the oil that going in towards the car. And a similar kind of level for 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 what a, a gas heat pump, uh, sorry, a heat pump will be doing for displacing gas generation, which is really interesting. So. Yeah, this is not just about reducing power sector emissions. This is about reducing um, emissions across the whole economy. That's actually quite interesting because a lot of people, I mean, um, Australia is probably behind the rest of the world in terms of electric car uptake, or although it is starting to accelerate, it's now at about 7% of new vehicle sales. And many people who have electric vehicles also have rooftop solar. So if they're sort of putting rooftop solar into their car, um, that means their own rooftop solar is probably achieving those sorts of emissions reductions actions um, for the transport. 
Yeah, yeah, and um, and I, I, it's a bit um, obviously where where I live, you know, I have a few solar panels, so few solar panels on the roof, but they're uh, not quite uh, uh, to try to align that with why I charge the car is probably a bit hard. But it must <laughs> in be the English, in the English winter, yes. Um, <laughs> It must be a sense of satisfaction to, to 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 see your car coming from that, and and to know that um, yeah, that's the level of emissions that that are being saved from 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 relative to to, to the oil that will be used in going into the car. Yeah, it's interesting looking at the statistics that you have on the share of wind and solar and grids. Um, Oceania continentally is probably well ahead of the rest of the world, and that's probably thanks to Australia, which is about twenty five percent wind and solar. Um, thanks greatly to rooftop solar, of course, but also a fair amount of um, utility-scale wind and solar. That's sort of quite significantly above the, all the other continents, although they're all kind of growing quickly. Yeah, we had uh, we were using IEA groupings on regions, which always pins you down to some. So, 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 so if we talk specific, yeah, Australia is a, um, a quarter, twenty five percent of its electricity from from wind and solar last year, and the whole of the EU is at twenty two percent last year. Um, some countries within the EU, um, um, uh, you had Germany, Spain, and Netherlands, uh, some pretty big countries, around a third of its electricity from. Uh, wind and solar, and then um, I think Denmark had 55% of its electricity from from wind alone. So some really high penetration rates across um, uh, parts of Europe, um, but broadly speaking, on a on a very similar journey towards uh, of where Australia is at the moment. Um, um, and when you look across the world, um, is, is what I always find very interesting is just how similar so many regions are. So you have Australia and Europe that are really leading on it. But then when you look at that global average of, of 12% wind and solar, the whole of Latin America as a whole, North America as a whole, um, uh, and Asia as a whole, are all around about that 12%. So um, you've got China uh, over that global average uh, next to the US, about 14%. Um, um, uh, you've got India a little bit below that global average, about 9%. Um, and there's only when you look at when you look at it from that perspective, there's only two regions that um, are really falling behind, and that uh, also falling behind, but haven't kind of picked up yet. You've got Africa, which uh, um, uh, always always struggle for uh, investment, and that situation has only got worse in the last couple of years. Uh, the level of wind and solar investment going in is into Africa is is is, is very small, um, and and also the the Middle East is even further behind. It's incredible that. Almost all the electricity generated across the Middle East um, is still coming from fossil fuels. Yeah, I should also mention that um, we shouldn't just be sort of clapping, um, uh, patting Australia on the on uh, um, Australians sort of patting themselves on the back. Um, you mentioned Chile, which is uh, um, well, it's, um, it's also got an interesting story to tell about the penetration of wind and solar. It's gone from 0.6 percent in 2012, which is probably around about where Australia was, to 28 percent in 2022 displacing coal, a 27% decline in coal power generation, and they've actually got, what is it, a 2030 or a 2035 end date for, for coal in Chile? Um, as they... Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's not, um, so far, so much of the kind of coal, the, the, the coal phase out discussion has happened in, um, in OECD countries. It's nice that, um, it's nice to see um, that, that spread more globally and, and, and you, just kind of, I guess, taking a, a step back for a minute, where you were talking about um, twenty thirty-five clean power for for for, for OECD countries and how that relates to to East Asia is, um, and emerging countries. It's 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 going to be a a very big step up. And one of the 
I, I guess, ex exciting things from my perspective about what's happened and it's happening in so many um, uh, advanced countries at the moment is is those commitments around clean power to try to kind of build on some of that momentum because uh, internationally, because um, there is a when you look at you know the pathways, you know, especially if you're looking in India or somewhere like that, and you're looking at um, uh, what you know your responsibility should be in all of this like how do you try how do you even like kind of like think about getting to 100 percent clean power they haven't beat coal generation yet so um so you know what's their journey going to be like and how do you go and 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 that only makes sense makes any context for them if they can actually see countries are, are really making an effort not just today but are making pledges to make an effort year on year to um, substantially and structurally reduce their emissions yeah um, and, and just to clarify too just looking at your report um, Chile has actually pledged to phase out coal by 2030 um, they joined the powering past coal alliance in September last year and that resulted in them actually sort of advancing their phase out date by a decade so um, perhaps something for that's for Australia to think about let's just go back to your home country and sort of you know, with the UK and also Europe, um, what's the energy debate looking like there? Um, I know there was a huge amount of documents released about a week ago, maybe it was two weeks ago now by the UK, I think about a thousand different documents and God knows how many thousands of pages. What kind of came out of that? Is this sort of the, is the sort of uh, Rishi Sunak government sort of holding the line on the, um, tr uh, on the green energy transition or is it kind of sort of fudging its numbers? Um, so there's a kind of difference between the electricity transition and the overall energy transition. On the, on specifically on the electricity transition in the UK, the UK has just been um, a, a pretty unprecedented globally. Um, um, Boris Johnson always came up with that phrase a, a while back about UK being the Saudi Arabia of wind because um, we do have you know, such a lot of coastline um, uh, with some very good wind speeds um, and some relatively shallow waters to be able to um, uh, build 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 an awful lot of wind relatively cheaply against the rest of the world and and the uk hasn't held back in that at all so the amount of offshore wind that's been built already and is on the cards already um is is is, is really insane we're getting to the point where um uh, uh 95 percent of our electricity is probably coming from clean sources by 2030 um and then that last five percent um trying to work out that last five percent by 2035 um with a pledge from the the government to get to clean power by 2035. So I'm hoping that so so certainly on the electricity side, it's absolutely fine. On the on the overall energy side, um, uh, there's there's a kind of a couple of missions in it all, which is um, more around insulation. Um, the UK's houses are just so old and uninsulated. Um, uh, it, it's such a, 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 a no-brainer to get more involved with that. Um, um, and then. Um, but on, you know, on heat pumps, there's uh, real progress on that. I think in the last 12 months, there's a real realization that heat pumps can decarbonize um, the, 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 the gas sector very well. Um, and that's such a huge amount of, um, of the UK's uh, energy demand. Um, uh, and also just to pick up in electric vehicles is becoming insane. Uh, petrol price here is really high electric vehicle um, um, vehicles seem really well there's a lot of kind of money and thought going into the, the electric vehicle charging network which is really cool um so just generally um it's really kind of nice to 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 to, to see all of that come through i think there was a the only slight wobble that we've really had was that 
that moment of Liz Truss trying to outlast the lettuce where she was coming in and um, uh, trying to trying to uh, uh, ban um, ban solar on um, uh, because um, uh, in, in some of the same ways that onshore wind in the UK has had has struggled with problems, um, it's kind of an eyesight issue and a concern over land use. And it, it comes, this comes back to my question that you said around social license in the first place. If you're going to go through a multi-decade or trans, uh, transition like this, you're going to make sure that you don't annoy people. You're going to make sure that you, when you are building solar panels, you're doing them in a sensible way on bits of land, you know, not fertile land that is much better used for farming. That um, of lower grade land. So it's all those kind of considerations to pull in to keep the right people on board. But um, no, certainly within the UK, um, um, progress is outstanding. Across the whole of Europe, progress is outstanding. The war with Russia and the high energy prices that led from that. And just that 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 desire to get off Russia, uh, gas, oil and coal imports as quickly as possible um, has really driven that design, not just within politics, but within consumers themselves. You actually anticipated my next question. Yes, so that then has actually sort of clarified people's thinking about this clean energy transition, that um, this is actually the solution to deliver sort of... It's, it's really it's really bizarre. So I, I don't know, um, uh, with across Europe, like what we've seen in the last, uh, in the last 12 months is a completely unprecedented um, appreciation of how people use energy in themselves so it's kind of coincided with uh, there's a lot of things that have coincided there's um there's the war that's happened where people are feeling almost a kind of responsibility of oh christ there's an energy crisis we need to do something about it it's higher bills coming there's a cost of living crisis coming with that there's metering uh, like live metering where people are sitting there and people are seeing all oh, right this is how much i'm paying a day or per hour even of um of electricity and gas that's sitting on their kitchen unit. And all of these factors have kind of coalesced into, um, into a, a real reduction, a really big reduction this winter in, in both um, gas and electricity use in a, in a domestic level where that consumer mindset has, has, has really come in. And what, what we don't know at the moment is how much of that is genuine energy efficiency that people have stepped up and worked out how to use less energy for the same benefit to them and how much of it was just kind of day-to-day -day struggles of wanting to cut back um, for and not spend that money for affordability reasons. Um, uh, so it would be interesting to see how that play out. But the the other bit alongside that as well is around solar panels. So in, the, in Europe as a whole, two thirds of the solar panels that were installed last year were on roofs. Um, and none of that was really dictated by top-down policy. It was really um, uh, made happen just by people going out there, driving down to IKEA, and then 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 screwing it to the roof themselves. These aren't like you know planned <laughs> solar farms sounds, that take a, a year or two years to be built. <laughs> so like, to go on, um, I hope they weren't screwing on the roofs themselves. I hope they got an electrician somewhere on the line. Oh, it's hilarious. Some of the some of the photos in uh, so obviously Jim, um, uh, uh, some of the photos of you know people just leaning them against the side of balconies and plugging them in because yeah, so, uh, just for a singular solar panel, you can uh, physically plug that into your into your pool and people are just kind of tilting them in the in a southerly direction on the side of their balcony. Yes, yeah, so 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 in theory, um, uh, 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 um, what we've seen like the, the um, is 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 people just go out and make this happen themselves very easily and very quickly. 
God, biggest, biggest <laughs> belief, really. But you're quite right, actually, about the, just the monitoring and just the knowledge and the awareness when you've actually got something which tells you how much you're using in, in a live situation. That's one of the, struck, the things that struck me. I visited the UK last year and visited various relatives in various parts of the country, and they all had these live sort of monitors of how much electricity they were using. And, you know, some of them were very insistent that they kept, you know, kept it green, sort of kept under certain levels. And, um, you know, the wife of one um, um, person we visited just will stand in front of it as we charged electric car because it was kind of sending it over to excess usage and things like that so um it was um yeah and no, it was it was it was quite interesting yeah and, and it's things and... like maybe you, you and me before maybe were like oh this is quite cool i'm really interested in this uh, which is fine for a very select audience but there's not many of us around that would would have that level of interest but 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 genuinely across the you know the uh, so much of the population now um you do get that that level of uh, that level of awareness is really really stepped up in a way that was pretty incomprehensible, you know, as early as 12 months ago. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Eh? And, and I think it actually sort of breeds um, good habits. I mean, people sort of get very excited and quite obsessed about it for a while. But by the time they finish being obsessed, be it a couple of months or six months or whatever, they've actually sort of changed their habits, at least to a certain extent. So that's, that's quite good. Um, Dave, look, um, thank you very much for joining the um, Energy Insiders podcast. And um, good luck. And we look forward to hearing more of um, your very insightful research as it comes out from um, Ember Climate. Thank you so much for your time, Charles. It's been uh, been great. And that was Dave Jones from Ember Climate, and we'll be back with uh, David Leach in part two very shortly. to part two of the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, my name is Giles Parkinson and joining me now is David Leach from ITK. David, um, I trust you are well. Um, you're traveling around the country. So um, thanks for spending some time with this week's podcast. Oh, Giles, as usual, it's always a pleasure. So much to talk about here in North Queensland, which I've touted has been great for wind. And of course, there's been absolutely no wind, but very hot. And I've heard that all the... Uh, all uh, we, we're only um it's, it's so hot that we don't get enough male tortoises which is going to be a problem one of these days but uh there's probably more important things to think about that this week well possibly not actually because if we're talking about male um, um enough tortoises then it's obviously sort of climate change is the impact which means underlies the point of actually accelerating the um energy transition but um i'm presume from North Queensland, you'd very much like to build a long transmission line down to the southern states as you've been advocating for some time. <laughs> well, I'd certainly like to send some of the cooler air up here. But anyhow, what, what, uh, what uh, you know, it sounds like uh, Penny Sharp's been making hot air rather than cool air. Yes, well, that's right. Yes, she continues on with this um, um, comments about Araring, saying not very happy about it closing down in August 2025, um, talking about all options still being on the table, including buying out Iraring. Before I ask you about that, just wish to point out that um, Mark Carney, the head of Brookfield Asset Management and the former Bank of England governor, just said, um, well, look, he was reasonably polite about it, but obviously clearly um, not very happy about the idea that it would be extended and just sort of saying that it would be incompatible with the uh, climate targets. Um, David... I guess there's some expectation in the market that maybe one or two units might be extended for another summer if we don't get enough um, renewables and storage built. I guess there's two things here. One, we could probably accelerate that auction process that the New South Wales government is doing now. But 
really the idea of buying back a raring, the government doing that to keep it open for whatever time, just seems to me to be completely nuts. I haven't been at all impressed with the stuff that Penny Sharp said so far. I said last week that we want to give her some more time, but the general tone of what she's saying and the, the fact that it doesn't come across as um, educated uh, in how the market actually even works is, is, is very disappointing. Uh, you know, I, I like people, ministers, to really come across with considered opinions. Like Chris Bowen did a lot of work before he said anything. He commissioned a research report before he uh, said anything. And as a result, you know, whilst you can complain about the policy, it's been thought out and formulated. Uh, here we've got uh, a government where the minister starts talking before she's even got her feet under the desk, or so it seems to me. I, I am pleased to see um, Mark Carney uh, saying what he did say. So, Giles, the, the big Gendalers could do as much as anyone to make this transition happen. And so it's absolutely wonderful to see someone like Mark Carney and Brookfield uh, that have both the balance sheet and the will to make something happen and uh, you, they, can, they can really make a difference. And in my opinion, uh, client, I've, all, I've thought this for years, consumers will really value a, a gentailer that gives them what they want. And there's a clear uh, expression in the general population that, of course, they want lower electricity prices, but uh, for, they also want cleaner electricity. That, uh, and, 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 you know, it needs the big gentailers to come to the party. They still sell about 70% of the electricity. And if they are not making any effort to sell green electricity, like really putting an effort into it, then it's going to be a lot harder. At the same time, the, the state governments can also accelerate the process, uh, particularly here in New South Wales. And I think Queensland's already made some moves. And you can remind me, Giles, I think that the first tender in the New South Wales, uh, the first results from the first tender of the New South Wales roadmap are due this month, aren't they? Look, they are indeed. And um, one of the things that's been suggested is that this whole sort of tender process can actually be accelerated um, in some form or another, just to sort of get, make sure that things are built by August um, 2025 to make sure that we don't have to buy or even extend the running of these some of these plants. But it'll be interesting to see uh, what does come through. Um, the second tender has already started. Uh, that's for 380 megawatts of firming capacity. It'll probably be a big battery, but one interesting aspect of that particular auction is that it's the first time at an auction of this scale that demand management has been offered a role. Now, you'd imagine demand management in this case would be something smelter-like or very big consumer, uh, unless someone's going to be very big, uh, very busy aggregating all that stuff, but you just imagine that a smelter or something like that would be the, be, be the obvious thing. So it'd be fascinating to see if that can actually deliver two hours of load shifting effectively um, um, through that tender. Um, Giles, I have to say that I think that... Um aluminium smelters are potentially capable of shutting something like 10% of their capacity for a couple of hours every day with only a little bit of moderate capital expenditure. I think that myself, that is a possibility, but I don't know that myself that it's the way forward, that we should be able to manage a system where people can consume as much electricity as they want to. I mean, that's the ideal system. It's not the Really, demand management's great if it, and there's a price for it, but it would be better uh, if we were selling the aluminium, for instance, and, uh, and they were getting all the electricity that they wanted. But talking uh, about batteries... No, 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 no,
um, in, in, in the previous league with Rob Murray Leach. I mean, demand management doesn't have to be not having electricity. It just means having an opportunity. If you can, as you say, smelters can shift their power needs, then why not encourage that as part of a smart grid? It just means that you don't have to build as many batteries. I mean, in effect, they're actually acting as a big battery. And I think people have talked about that as smelters. As well, the, 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 it depends on, it's a case by case thing, but you need to be able to ramp up as well as to ramp down, like to ramp, if, you know, if you don't want to lose uh, production, then you have to be able to make it up, uh, say, when there's an excess of, product, of solar production in the middle of the day. But look, that's a long discussion. Yeah, uh, but, but, but no one's talking. Mean, I mean, obviously, if they, if, if they shouldn't be bidding into a contract if they can't do it, because they don't want to lose a pot line or anything like that. But if they can do it, then why the heck not? But you're about to get onto the big Can Canberra battery. And um, I think that's a really interesting result. Um, one, we've kind of seen the unveiling of the new Macquarie battery um, organised um, company, basically still wholly owned by, by Macquarie Group under the Green Investment uh, Group. Um, it's called Ecu Energy. Um, it's quietly been working behind the scenes. Its name hasn't really been revealed publicly until now. It turns out that it also owns or partly owns the Hazelwood and the Range Bank batteries. Um, now it's won the tender for the big Canberra battery, which is 250 megawatts, 500 megawatt hours. And typically, Macquarie-like has come up with an innovative financing deal whereby the ACT government gives them quarterly payments, which basically gives them a guaranteed revenue stream, which lowers the cost of capital. And then in turn, Macquarie will share the revenue with the um, ACT government. And it says that will be uh, have a net present value or basically they'll get more money out of that than they will from the payments. I guess what's interesting about this is, one, the payments is not associated with any grid services like you've seen for the Victoria Big Battery. And two, the nature of this deal will not be disclosed. I mean, I mean, sort of the nature is disclosed, but not the details, which is very unlike the ACT government, because they've actually been one of the few who have been really upfront about the pricing and its impact on consumers. But they're talking here commercial and confidence and hiding it behind um, um, veils of secrecy so there you go that's my little thing about it what, what do you reckon david well i think it's a risky strategy for uh, a government to get into bed with a private sector operator and that's uh, i've got the greatest respect both for the uh, act government and for macquarie uh, but the trouble is if for some whatever reason there's a, a big loss uh, then there'll be a lot of questions uh, you know and there's rarely a case where you can make a gain without the possibility of a loss. Uh, and, and so that's about the only thing I want to say on, on that without knowing anything more about it. But the other thing I think we should point out is that we are, we are getting batteries uh, get, being built, but as well as the utility scale batteries, and this is, will shortly be the biggest battery, more or less 500 megawatt hours in Australia, at least for a while, but last year, if we listen to what uh, SolarWiz had to say, SunWiz, we actually had more or less uh, about 500 megawatt hours of um, behind the meter storage installed. And that's accelerating quite quickly as well. Now, it's hard to measure the impact of that on, on grid demand and things. It doesn't show up in electricity prices or anything just yet. But just to say there's another force uh, working away there all the time that we don't talk about so much in the same way that monthly rooftop uh, solar installations running at, what are they, 200 megawatts, 250 megawatts a month, aren't they, or something, Giles, is, is still a pretty big deal. 
Well, look, that's right, and um, what one imagines too that the, uh, the the case the pace of battery storage will increase further. We've seen this week um, the price of Powerwall batteries being slashed by another ten percent, so that's a twenty percent drop in the last two months. Um, obviously, the supply chains are easing up, and the cost of those supplies um, is easing as well. And we just heard this week also that Tesla is about to build a mega factory for mega packs in Shanghai, which will obviously. Um, be good news for Australia because some of these big battery um, um, projects have had to wait, or well, a year or two, or sometimes even more, for the delivery of their batteries. So, so that's good. And you could probably also point out that there's a lot of battery on wheels running around as well, more than four thousand a month coming on. To the, well, that, that, coming that's 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 right. Although we, well, but there's no we have there's to... no vehicle to grid technology or um, well, there is the technology there, but there's not the sort of the protocols have not been agreed with all the networks or any of the networks, quite frankly. So. Yes. Yeah, and you know, if you read the news in China, I don't think it's a big secret that the price of uh, lithium carbonate, uh, the uh, expensive ingredient in in lithium batteries, has uh, declined by forty percent or something like that uh, this year. And there seems to be a massive oversupply of batteries right this very second uh, in uh, China. So that's the trouble with following the news. We look at what's happening here in Australia and in Europe and even in the United States, but keeping an eye on the biggest market in the world in China is very difficult. Uh, but certainly what happens in China quite clearly is going to affect the prices of here in Australia. And at the moment, it's going through an oversupply uh, part of the cycle. And so it's a good opportunity to get set. Well, that's that. Yes, and I should also mention too that um, there's been some great reporting on the driven actually by Daniel Blakely um, about the price wars in the EVs um, in China, um, driven partly by the sort of the cheaper batteries, but also by, by this sort of need to sort of you know, grab market share, principally between Tesla and BYD. But we'll probably likely see that come through to other markets, including Australia, which will finally be good news. Look, just while we've been talking about battery storage, should I also mention just a couple of other projects. One is the Torrens Island big battery. Um, that was actually built. That's completely about five months ago in late November, but it's taken them until just a week ago um, to actually agree the, you know, to sign the connection deal. So something caused its delay there. I don't know whether the fact that it's got grid forming inverters and that's still a issue in working out the protocols for that and the connection agreements for that. I know that that was a problem even for Hornsdale Power Reserve, um, which I think was built a couple of years ago, ostensibly um, to provide grid forming um, inverter services, but apart from a trial, has not actually I don't think it's actually entered into sort of commercial service on that part, or if it has, it's only just done that. Um, and there's also a new battery too at Talem Bend. Um, if people remember back, Talem Bend Solar Farm was the first utility-scale solar farm in South Australia, followed then by Bungala 1 and 2 and a couple of others. Um, now there's a second stage of the Talem Bend Solar Farm, which I think has been built and connected, but not necessarily generating. And with that, there is a uh, 41 megawatt hour, um, one hour battery. Um, which is also poised to join the grid. So, um... so Giles, I think the point about that, all that in, in one sense is the batteries are capable of being delivered and are being built, but, you know, we've been hoping that AEMO is going to get better and better and uh, working with the uh, companies to get these stuff on the grid quickly and promptly. Now, batteries are complicated because they can be both a source of power and a provider of power. So the grid studies may be a little more complex than, than just for a wind or a solar farm, if you can imagine. Uh, and then we do have this new market. I think uh, you also wrote that the AEMC uh, is under a bit of pressure 
this year to actually work out uh, who is going to be providing system services going forward and, um, and how they're going to be rewarded. It's extremely clear to me personally, I, I, I'm in zero doubt, that the vast majority of system services can be provided by grid forming inverters like uh, virtual synchronous machines in the Hitachi techno uh, terminology, but basically uh, inverters with batteries. We're moving to an inverter grid. That's what it's going to be, whether it's wind farms, solar farms, and there's nothing very spinning. And the sooner uh, AEMO and the AEMC uh, you know, pave the way so that that can actually happen, and happen efficiently and quickly, uh, then the better off we'll be. And along those lines, uh, I'm certainly hoping we're going to get better results out of these connection, batch connection process for these renewable energy zones. Otherwise, this, um, we're going to fall well behind what we need, and we will have to keep the coal-fired stations open. Uh, we really need you know, the transmission, AEMC, AEMO, to all work hand-in-hand hand and provide the foundations uh, for the new grid. We just have to have that as well as the actual power. power. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more, David. David, I think we're going to wrap up the um, the, uh, the podcast here because I'm sensing a few sort of um, technical issues in the background there, and I'm kind of running solo on this today. So, look, um, thank you very much um, for um, interrupting your um, travels to speak on the Energy Insiders podcast this week. Thanks also for, to Dave Jones from Ember Climate Group. Um, and thanks to all the listeners out there. Um, please do give us your feedback and any suggestions. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.